today's guest on Terranolius is my good friend, Efik Santhu. I'd like to welcome you to the program. Thank you so much for having me, love. And thank you so much for accepting to join because I know what an incredibly busy schedule you have, especially these days. Why would you be having a busy schedule these days? <laughs> Let's get straight into it. Well, basically, I'm running for candidate for president of the Cypress Green Citizens Corporation. Okay, tell me a little bit, if you don't mind, just for the sake of this conversation, I'm just going to call it the Greens because it's so much easier. You know, the Australian in me likes to use acronyms. And I think that it's a bit more recognisable that way, to be honest. Branding is everything, right? Even in politics, branding is everything. Tell us a little bit just first about the Greens in Cyprus. What is the Greens? Well, the party was um, basically um, exists since 1996. It started from a group of people that 10 years earlier than that, like 84, 86, they had formed uh, an association called Ecological Movement. Mm -hmm. They were um, a a group, an environmental entity that um, came into existence because the Friends of Akamas, who were trying to save the Akamas Peninsula from various military um, um, operations and uh, excavations and people taking sand from the beaches and whatnot, Um, they were beginning to be so big and recognizable as an environmental group, but it was very difficult for them as friends of the Akamas to try and um, help in other areas of the island because it was a very geographically defined group. So they created the Cyprus Ecological Movement. Mm -hmm. That movement, 10 years on, saw that basically they were doing a lot of of interventions, but they didn't really have access to be able to stop things. They they weren't having any real impact on the executive branch. So they weren't there in the room with the decision makers and policy makers. So they came up with the idea that they should, you know, run as a political party. So they tried it in 1996. They didn't manage to get in, but they barely didn't manage to get in. So five years on, 2001, they try again, and this time they elect one MP. So that was the first showing of a Greens MP in Parliament, so 2001. Yes. yes. So obviously much later than most of Europe and the West, let's say. Well, yes and no, because mm-hmm. most of the European Green most of the Green parties in Europe are not in Parliament per se. I mean, most of the okay. um, most of the Green parties managed to start getting in when they started to have more European um, affiliations because they become members of the European Union. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're talking about you know the actual European Union growing um, and, and the incorporation of the new states, then yes. As it was growing, more Green parties were entering into parliament or entering into government coalitions. Why do you think, sorry to interrupt you, Mm -hmm. I know you're on a train of thought there, but why do you think it came so late? I mean, I grew up in Australia, as you know, um, and the Greens have always been present there. Why? Why would they be present there and it took so long in Europe? Well, you have to remember that the the Republic was only formed in 1960. Mm -hmm. And the people that were in politics at the time were mostly people that had some sort of hand in the way that they dealt with um, the British colony. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and of course, uh, I count that pre-existed as a political party. I mean, I think it was the only party that Mm pre-existed and made it into, you know, the parliament that started started to be formulated from 1960 onwards. Um, There's that. And there's also the fact that you had um, a big obstacle in parties entering um, the parliament. There was Mm -hmm. a threshold of like four point something percent. Nearly five percent, if I'm not mistaken. It was at the time. And um, in 1996 was the first time that they actually came with the simple majority rule. Mm -hmm. So if... Uh, if we had managed in 1996 to reach that threshold and they were only campaigning for like, I don't know, four or five months, I mean, the party was 
made its um, initial existence yep. made uh, known. It was in February of 1996. Okay. Elections were in May. So that was only like a few months of them actually campaigning with candidates, so on and so forth. So I, I think that it's actually a big achievement, the fact that within five years, they managed to establish themselves in, um, in, in the political landscape of Cyprus as it was at the time. They managed to enter the parliament and they also managed to keep themselves in parliament because a few other parties entered in 2001 as well, yeah. but um, they ceased to exist They've after that. Gone, yeah. So there have been a few formations that have come and gone since us, and we're the only constant. And it's 27 years already now, so, you know, big hooray for us. No, time flies, I guess, but yeah. So <laughs> I wonder if you would agree with me that the Greens somewhat represents the development and the maturation of Cyprus as a state in the sense that, sure, we were independent from 1960 onwards, we had many issues to deal with post-British colonization. We then had our intercommunal conflicts in the 60s. We had the war in 74, and so on and so on. Would you say it's safe to say that certainly the generation that existed from independence onwards, uh, or pre-independence, I should say, the older generation, got familiar with your agels, with your disease, with your vicos and, and whatnot, so had cemented themselves in political parties. Their children were being born, let's say, into political mm -hmm. parties. Then we come to the modern era today, or the last 20 years, and we're seeing a younger generation come through, a little bit more politically mobile, mm -hmm. a little bit more politically savvy. Um, as a state, we've had over 50, nearly 60 years to mature ever since um, independence. So we're now starting to see younger people choose what party they want to follow and not just adopt it from their parents. So would I be right to say that parties, I mean, I'm talking mm -hmm. to you, so I'm <laughs> going to use the Greens as an example, obviously, but is the parties like the Greens looking towards the youth and the young? And when I say the youth, I'm talking about anyone under 50, really. <laughs> I mean, and I, I'm doing that on purpose. I'm 43, so I'm in the youth. <laughs> um, would you say that these are the people that are, you know, voting in your politicians, voting in your decision makers and policy makers, because they are the ones that have a lifespan ahead of them that well, matters. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be cruel. I don't want to be cruel, and I'm hoping I'm not offending anyone, but... Uh, well, there's a lot to unpack in yep, that. Yep. First of all, let's remember that um, Cyprus didn't see a second TV station until 1992. Yeah. So basically, people were only being being informed from the Cyprus Broadcasting Corporation. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't do a good job or not. It's just that when you've got the government basically um, mm -hmm. mansplaining everything to everybody and keeping the information really tight, close to them, it means that it was very difficult as a political landscape to anybody else to let anybody else grow. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was very natural that it came out from other. Um, existential problems that arose. I mean, that the fact that the Green Party was there. Yep. Because the other political parties, they were mainly focused on what was going on with the Cyprus problem. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they, were, they, they had policies and they were doing politics on various other subjects as well. But their main form of existence basically rotated around their position on the Cyprus problem. Yep. Um, at the end of the day, having a new party that actually had a political philosophy that was distinct from the rest... And not just a formation of people that said that we can do it better, because that is basically what people are saying in political parties, um, was something that helped us. I think um, the Cyprus problem does feature predominantly in all, in all fields in Cyprus, not just politics, yes. but everywhere. However, what we've seen probably since 2013 with the economic crash, 
that people started focusing on other issues that matter to us today. Not that the Cyprus problem doesn't matter to us today, of course it does, but you know, education, hospitals, highways, the environment, our drinking water, these things matter very much today as yes, opposed but to... I, I also mm. think that it's a matter of time mm-hmm. because reality is what it is. Yeah. And um, we are a generation that basically never saw the island unified. Mm-hmm. And we're already like in our 40s. We have children that are growing up and they've never seen basically the sun set um, on the right hand, yeah. uh, sorry, on the left hand, unless they've been to Poliskris or Kos, because the yeah. whole island is basically facing mm-hmm. <laughs> south. Um, I think that in, in general, there are a lot of stuff, th- there's a lot of stuff out there that we will be, you know, trying to analyze in a sociological and a political way for many years to come. But I don't think that it's, um, it, it, it's a coincidence that you actually had more parties being formulated from 2000 and onwards because the for instance the entrance towards the EU actually opened up the horizons for political parties to formulate their partnerships with yeah. um, political parties that are at european level or mm-hmm. political groups in the european parliament uh, we also had a lot more going on with the feminist side of things we actually had legislation that was trying to promote equality I mean, it, supposedly there was no obstacle towards women being equal in Cyprus before 2004, yeah. but we were never actually acting on it. And mm-hmm. with the acquis communitaire, there's a lot of things happening there. So a lot of issues are coming up because more women are, be, are getting involved in politics. And there's a disparate, different aspect towards that. The youth, again, it's again a youth. European aspect, because you always had young people being active. I mean, in 1960, most of the people that were elected in parliament or were appointed as ministers, they were from 30s and under. Uh, But again... Children by today's standards. (laughs) But they ended up being the dinosaurs of politics. They were dominating the political landscape for the next 50, 40, 30 years of their lives. Let me jump in there and interrupt you, because you used the word dinosaur, and I want to grab that, because... While Cyprus was a young republic with young leadership throughout its first decades, the dinosaur phenomenon that we see in Cyprus, and we see it a lot in the Middle East where we're located, we see it in some Southern European countries. Um, What do you think is the reason why we have dinosaurs? Is it because, A, people are too familiar with their... um, the political figures that become like family members. So we live in a small island, it's a big village. Or is it because we just don't have other candidates stepping up? What What do you really think is the real reason why we're seeing the same people from 1960 through to 2023 being present in the top? Well, I, I've thought about this a lot, and mm-hmm. there are two or three aspects. First of all, you had people that had taken um, the their fate into their hands. With, the ni- with whatever was happening in the 1950s on the island. Mm-hmm. So you had educated people that were coming back to the island and they were trying to do something better. We had been promised independence mm-hmm. after the Second World War and that was you know, thrown out of the window. This was the second time that it was dangled in front of our eyes because there were similar promises made in the First World War. But at the time, Greece didn't decide to you know, do something about it. So that was like a lost cause and that mm-hmm. was considered to be a, a missed opportunity. Um so these people in the twenties um, and their thirties, they're suddenly responsible to make sure that this boat doesn't sink. 
having to deal with all the issues that were um, that were coming up with the Turkish Cypriot community. Mm-hmm. Because I have to say, we're, we're constantly talking about the Greek Cypriot side right now. So mm-hmm. I have to be very distinct about it. I'm not surprised that most of them remained in the political landscape. Mm-hmm. You had some exceptions, like, for instance, Kasus Papadopoulos. I mean, he was throughout his 20s um, and early 30s either um, an MP or a minister, but then he gave it up um, for the various reasons that, you know, it's not this podcast's so, yeah. um, responsibility to talk about. But anyway, he got out of politics and then he came back at a point where the, his political party was basically asking him to step in so that they could reunite again. So you have seen that occurring with other political parties as well. I'll remind you of Yanagis Maxis, for instance, who was brought in as an, well, seems now like an interim president at some point for DC. Um Now, the thing is that in the 2000s, that's where you first had the opportunity because there were less strict laws for the MPs to be elected as well. That's where you had uh, the other generation having a go at it. So you had, for instance, the first uh, um, Secretary General of the Green Party in 1996, which was George Bedegis. He was 36 years old, mm-hmm. practically um, a youngling. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He entered parliament at um, 42, basically, mm-hmm. no, 41. And uh, he was considered to be a whippersnapper. They were treating him as a whippersnapper. Now, there were there were equally young people in parliament elected from other political parties as well. But he was also like a, a representative of a new party. Those were very difficult times. And I remember them because I used to go to parliament to have fun. I mean, I liked the whole process. I, I considered it to be a rarity. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, you weren't sure that we're going to be in parliament in 2006. So I was trying to suck the whole thing in. I mean, the experience yeah. and whatever. Learn what you could while you could. Yes. And mm-hmm. it was it was rough. It was very rough to be there, to be trying to to discuss about issues, not only about the Cyprus problem, You were actually trying to get things rolling and working because the problems that we see in government um, in general, those were problems that the parliament was facing as well. You had legislation that was coming very late um, towards parliament and giving us almost no room for in debate. This, mm-hmm. of course, is continuing to happen right now. <laughs> But at least now with the internet and with the, the access that you have through social media, you might actually get more information in a smaller um, period of time. We're still talking about the age of facts and, you know, people actually reading newspapers and keeping clippings in box files to try and keep up with what was going on. I mean, it was very difficult to be able to do good politics and be constantly aware of any minuscule changes that were happening. The other thing you mentioned earlier about feminism, um, if we're going to go, let's stray into the field of women in Cyprus. Mm I'm impressed to see that, for example, the DC elections earlier this year, um, uh, yeah, sorry, earlier this year, correct. Um, for the first time, we had two candidates that were both post-74 yes. candidates, and the woman was elected. Mm-hmm. She was also Anita Dimitrio. She was also the president of the House, the first woman to hold the position, the youngest, if I'm not mistaken, yes. to hold the position. Well, no, um, because remember that we had people that were elected in their 20s and 30s in, since 1960. So no, but she I mean, as House the president. Yes, I think that oh. she was the, I, I think that she wasn't the youngest. But okay, I, well, I have to remember how old Spiros Kipriano was uh, at some point when okay, he was. Okay, I'll stand I mean, corrected, you know. Well, look, at the end of no, the, no, 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 I, day, I, I yeah. might be wrong. But, um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, first I keep woman, forgetting yeah. that basically you had 25-year-olds that were ministers and MPs, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it did happen at some stage yes. in Cyprus. <laughs> and it can happen again. Um, Hopefully. <laughs> young people do need to step in. But no, coming back to the, the women in parliament um, and women in politics, I mean, we see Anita Dimitriou, Um, who's a powerhouse, who's doing 
interesting things and it's great to see such a different shift in um in the, in that political realm mm-hmm. um we see for example in the north if we're going to talk about the turkish cypriots we see mineatle another good friend of mine who's um leading the tdp party tdp mm-hmm. Um, they just recently met, actually, Mina and uh, Anita, and that was great to see that some um, this communication between the women across the divide, because you know we've seen that the men have been meeting for so many years. Let's let the listeners decide if that's been successful or not to date. But um, we've also had other women in politics. We've had Braxula, um, the head of AD for mm-hmm. a while, and um, I mean like, we've had other women around, but some um, not as many have been as long lasting. Not as many have been let's say, part of the furniture as long as some women. But I must say that you, Efik Santhu, I know that you've been with the Greens from the dawn of time. <laughs> <laughs> Seems not... so long ago. <laughs> yeah, but it's not at the end of the day. Like you, you, you are still young. You are still fresh. You're an established woman. You've, um, you've, you've had your career. You've had your family. You're married. You've got a son, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, and you, you seem to know where you stand from my conversations with you other times, you've got very clear opinions about things, but you also listen. And I like having discussions with you because um, just recently when we met, I remember saying to you about, um, you know, we've got to get more trees planted in Nicosia. We've got to get more trees planted in Nicosia. And then you and uh, your colleague Alexia turned around and said to me, you know, the Greens is not just about trees. <laughs> and I knew that, but it just, you startled me because I thought, that's right. The Greens is also about housing policy, about mm. welfare, about many other things. Is there something other than the actual physical environment that you want to focus on in your candidacy and in your potential leadership of the party, mm-hmm. other than the environment itself? And I don't want to go down the Cyprus path because there are many people talking about that. That's been done. It's There are many people talking about it. You don't need to talk about it. Well, we, we can yeah. discuss it later if you want. But <laughs> my answer is actually indirectly connected to the Cyprus problem. Um, when we talk about environment, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people think that we're only talking about the natural environment, that, you know, um, trees maintaining the green spaces, uh, ensuring that, you know, we've got a good way of dealing with forest fires and with drought and stuff like that, which is, I mean, it's a huge problem that we, that we need to deal with. But um, to be honest with you, I think that the biggest crisis that we have right now, and it's connected to so many other parallel issues, is a housing issue, is a housing problem. So right now we have so many um, buildings that are basically left in disrepair, Mm -hmm. that are being underutilized. We don't have policies that are actually going to be helping younger people to be able to have some sort of safety that at least, you know, rent is going to be something that's going to be controlled and they can actually build their future. Um, So... To to us as Greens, it's not only the social repercussions of people not having like a place that they can call their own, growing up, growing elderly, um, having a smaller paycheck coming in basically as your um, retirement um, allowance. It's also about making sure that before we keep expanding our cities, before we keep eating up the landscape and before we lose most of the agricultural land mm-hmm. and we're, we're kicking the husbandry um, infrastructure further and further away from us or enclosing industrial areas, encircling them with housing projects, we should actually be focusing on making sure that we've got the best utilization of empty plots, of derelict houses within the city limits as they are today. Do you, so, do you sorry to interrupt yeah, you, no, but... No, no, um, Obviously, I know that you're world and I know that you look at other countries for um, best practice examples and whatnot. I remember having this discussion with someone just recently, actually, about housing issues in Cyprus. And I raised the what they do in Australia, where mm-hmm. 
empty apartments, empty houses, empty blocks of lands have council rates on them. They have taxes. So basically, it's not it's not in your interest. Other than the capital gain on the property, the actual value of the property going up, you're actually paying money to thin air. Basically, I have a block of land or a, an empty house. If you're not utilizing yep. it, you're paying through the nose. Exactly. Yes. And what that does is it encourages, it encourages you either to sell it, which mm -hmm. helps generate the market, revitalize the market, or it encourages you to put a rental put a renter into there so that you start solving the housing problem um, they also had things like the first home buyers grant they had things like tax deductions for first home buyers there's there's a, 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 an array of options out there i mean every country is different and every yes. country yeah the thing is that we we seem to constantly we're constantly trying to reinvent the wheel when there are a lot of solutions out there but Look, a small country like cyprus yeah. shouldn't always reinvent the wheel no, it shouldn't. Especially but when there is best We practice. have very particular problems that have led to this. And this is where I'm, I was going to with mm -hmm. the conversation. So why do we have so many empty buildings? Because it's not only because you've got families that, you know, they've multiplied and, you know, like you've got 16 people that are um, the um, the owners of a specific plot of land or uh, or a house or whatever. You also have the discrepancies that have happened because of the invasion, mm -hmm. where you have a lot of Turkish Cypriot properties that are being left under the care of the um, guardianship of the of the state, which is not has been has left a lot of things um, you know unresolved, uh, and many houses that are in disrepair and underutilized right now do belong to this category. You have a lot of houses and and property that belongs to people that are now basically living abroad, mm -hmm. third and fourth generation even not not only more recent um, people that have left. And, I, and, and it's the responsibility of the government of Cyprus to find the owners, to either ask them to give guardianship over to the state mm -hmm. if they don't want to sell off. I mean, you know, they can have a period where they're trying to sell it off. They might, they might not even know that they have property in mm -hmm. Cyprus. I mean, I've been seeing a lot of people that are posting on Facebook because, you know, they're, they're trying to find out if there's any sort of information happening. Uh, and, you know, the, the registry, uh, the land registry does have some information, but it's it's obsolete. It's um, you've got maybe like 40, 50 years of unresolved issues that are yeah. not even registered in the land registry. So I, I think that it has to become a focus of the executive branch. They actually have to look into every single plot with the help of the local authorities. So right now in in June of two, 2024, we have elections for local authorities. And a lot of the responsibilities that municipalities had before are going to be given over to what is called the district council. So that actually leaves space for the, the municipalities and the, the village complexes as they are being formed now. It gives them a lot of space of actually trying to resolve this. Mm -hmm. And it is a health issue because you've got um, empty plots, empty houses. Means we see that every time it rats. rains, what happens? You've got snakes, mm -hmm. you've got like uh, mosquitoes being reproduced because mm -hmm. you know, any small quantity of water yep. that is left uh, um, you know, there and not tipped over, that basically is a, a mosquito infestation situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, you've got the problem of, you know, you're, you're trying to um, bring tourism into your your city and you've got half of the buildings that are basically deteriorating. They're falling in on themselves. You, you've got various uh, porches and verandas just toppling down on people walking uh, on the pedestrian side. This is not how you expect to, you know, have a revitalized tourism product that you're trying to, to bring people in. But also, we have a problem where a lot of historical buildings, a lot of things that have big architectural value, are not being safeguarded, and they're being lost to time and dereliction. So there is another aspect of the Greens, the fact that it's 
about protecting architectural um, um, heritage as well. And, and, then like you, and as you mentioned, one of the byproducts of that is your increase in tourism your yes. product. Because, I mean, we're talking but about... All, all this is about, mm. you know, bringing more wealth for everybody. Mm-hmm. You live in a beautiful city, you actually invest in that city. You've got more houses that are available for businesses or for um, people to live in. That means that rent is falling down because there's more availability. You have more people actually living in the city centres. You have less ghettos happening because mm-hmm. ghettos are formed where you have the areas that are supposed to be um, less uh, lucrative for people to invest in. Um, you, 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 there are so many issues that can be resolved. I mean, the mobility issue. We're, we're constantly talking about the fact that we need public transport and we need to fix the pedestrian walks and have micro-mobility and stuff like that. But all that is tied up to the fact that you have a lot of property that isn't developed. I mean, you've seen roads where you, you suddenly don't have a pedestrian walk for like, I don't know, three, 30, 40 meters, and then the pedestrian walk starts again. Yeah. That's because that part of the land was never developed. It's mm-hmm. still considered to be a plot, um, yeah. not a building plot, an agricultural plot. Yeah. So they don't need to have a pedestrian walk. So h- how exactly am I going to get mobility for people that need to use the bus if they can't use a pedestrian street to be safe on it? Mm-hmm. Or if you have cars parking on that side of the street because there's no pedestrian walk, so it seems more accessible. And then suddenly, you know, people with their push chairs or just walking, going from one place to the other, they actually have to walk on the asphalt because there's no pedestrian walk or because there's a car parked in front of them. You're basically describing a Gordian knot that over the years has been getting yes. tighter and tighter. Now, we don't exactly want to come along with um, the great sword and cut it in half, but we no. do want to untangle it. If you untangle it, it yeah. means that you're also dealing with the fact that you don't have enough greenery in mm-hmm. the cities. So these available spaces, some of them need to be safeguarded as green areas and open areas. Um, I don't know if you've heard about this before, but there's, there's this phenomenon called heat islands. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you have um, development of, of a specific area in a city that actually excludes uh, the winds from going through like without obstacles, basically means that it doesn't cool down in the nighttime. And we we're, we're we're an island that has sun rays like ten ten months <laughs> a year, right? Yeah. So if you don't have the evening uh, wind coming through and cooling down the buildings and removing like the heat from the actual residual heat mm. that is left in the asphalt in the buildings, that means that the next day the temperature is going to be even more rising from where it was before. That creates the phenomenon of the heat island, and each building is pumping the heat on the on each other because they're it's um, reverberating from one to the, to the other especially with these new buildings with the mirrors that seems yeah. to be like a great idea but it really isn't because they're just mirroring the heat rays uh, the, sorry the sun rays to each other and they're just warming up the buildings again let me ask a question mm-hmm. then i'm going to answer it and then i'm going to follow <laughs> it up with a second question okay so why would developers not be interested in listening to what you're saying now and actually developing their properties and their buildings and their streetscapes to avoid these heat islands. Now, I'm going to answer it because, oh, they're interested in their economics, uh, they're interested (laughs) in their profits. But then I'm going to ask the second part of the question is, but do they not realize that over time, the electricity bills for the air conditioning, the the, you know, the, all, all the other costs that are associated with these heat islands way outweigh mm-hmm. the initial savings or profit-making. But it's not their money, is it? It does come down to greed. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the word greed 
is key towards any of the policies that we're trying to put, push through. And you're bringing me very flawlessly towards the second focus of what I believe should be the Green Party's focusing. It's about combating um, corruption that, and making sure that you have transparency because every single environmental problem, every single financial problem, every single social problem that we have on this island comes back to greed, people trying to grab as much as they can, as much as they want, um, not caring about legislation, not caring about, you know, what's right, not caring about who they take it away from, because everything that they gobble up now is being gobbled up from the next generations and from people that are actually going to be living on this island way after we're going to be gone, if there is an island. And, no, there, there, will, there will be an island, because <laughs> I'm hoping that the island is rising out of the sea faster than global warming. Well, the, I still um, think that the Akuyu <laughs> nuclear plant is going to put a stop to this island being habitated oh, at some no, point, no. and I'm not sure where exactly that's going to happen, but that's me and the doomsday thing, right? Look, with the with the environment and the the future generations and the corruption and the transparent the lack of transparency, would it not be right to say that although technically speaking it's greed that's causing you know developers to build and grab whatever they can and always oh, making them sound very evil? Yes, there may be legislation in place that they're ignoring, but do you blame them? <laughs> when there is no enforcement. Because, I mean, I must admit that Cyprus, when I look at the laws, when I look at certain not, uh, topics that I'm interested in, it's there on paper. <laughs> if I'm going I'm to dumb this right down so everyone understands what I'm trying to say, we have laws that say going over the speed limit or going through a red light is illegal, but we all do it. We know that it's illegal to park on a footpath, but everyone does it. Why? The legislation is there, but there's no enforcement. Kosti, let's just take that great example of yours. They installed the cameras and suddenly a lot of people are getting the bills for 300 euro for passing the red light. And instead of talking about people, you know, actually realizing that it is actually a huge problem if you're passing the red light, they're talking about reducing the 300 euro fine. Yeah. And it's just preposterous. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. Now, for many years in my previous capacity, I was working with some good friends um, on road safety in Cyprus, we were bringing over best practice from Australia and other, and Sweden and other countries. We had the World Health Organization over to Cyprus for international conferences, brought over Monash University Road Safety and the Accident Research Unit. Um, we've done some great work with the European University and CDE. The, um, we've seen that on paper, we can get it all through. Mm -hmm. We can get little groups together that can, you know, chant anything you like and it all goes through and it's all lovely and we got to the stage now where we do have these red light cameras and whatnot but what you just said is exactly the problem that we have in cyprus where the government comes along the authorities come along and say oh we're finding too many people on river dieni in makedonia this or engomi whatever it is there we're finding too many people so what do they do to solve the problem they raise the speed <laughs> There is no other example, and I've actually looked it up. I've done my research. Anyone who's going to jump and say that to me, I've done my research. We are the only example in the European Union that has raised the speed because too many people were getting fined. Yes. We're also now giving people Disregarding more sa safety. Disregarding and safety. And we now, now, this week, we're talking about increasing the time that you're allowed to sit in the intersection while it's red to turn right because too many people were getting booked. Rather than adjusting the lights giving more green arrow time 
and actually enforcing the law to save or, or even people's bringing lives. The countdown. I, I will never forget <laughs> somebody asking, um, I think it was the, the responsible person in the police force about traffic, and actually asking them, why don't you bring down the countdown so that people know how, how long they have to actually do that. And he's like, we're not children to do a countdown. It's like, this person really had no clue about what is common practice in most other Western uh, countries. Not only European, but, you know, I don't think that a lot of people from Cyprus travel outside of Europe. So at least in other European countries, he should have seen that. And it's not only for cars, it's also for pedestrian walk- walkers as well. Correct. Because you need to know that, you know... You're halfway through, of course you're going to continue. But if you haven't started yet and you see the countdown and you see that it's very, you know, very close to, to, to stopping, you wait. You wait for the next green light for, you, for yourself to pass through. Um, we have issues here in Cyprus where well, law is one thing, mm-hmm. health and safety is another. Yes. And enforcement is important. And yeah, and enforcement is the bridge between the two. Because without enforcement, you're going to have rule breaching, you're going to have laws yeah. broken, and that results in health and safety issues. I'll bring you another example, mm-hmm. which is a bit closer to the things that I've been working on. Um, we've introduced legislation, um, the, the government has introduced because they had to, um, but I say we because Cyprus is we. Mm-hmm. So um, th- there's legislation now that is going to enforce pay as you throw through the whole island, which basically means that you are going to be paying for every single item of garbage that you're throwing away. But also it's enforced um, separation of recyclables at the source. Mm-hmm. for which you're not paying. I mean, there's an indirect fee for garbage collection, but you're, the, 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 the amount that you're paying for garbage collection, for whatever it is that you have tossed away and not recycled, is high because there is a bit of a fine in it as well. They're trying to make you recycle because the 15 years of trying to get people to you know, voluntarily, recy- voluntarily recycle have not worked. Now, we were talking about inventing the wheel again. I mean, this has been established throughout the whole of the world, that unless you actually put in the fines, nobody's recycling. And, you know, I'm, I'm constantly surprised about how many people think that, oh, we're never, we're never going to be a Nordic country, we're never going to be a Western European country, so we have to put fines in. No, they needed to put fines in as well. Of course they did. They needed to put in um, a specific percentage of women being elected in their parliaments. They needed to enforce laws before they became the culture. Mm-hmm. And it needed a generation to be able to become a culture. So legislation is finally through. And it's supposed the landmark of actually having this enforced is going to be the 1st of June of 2024. Out. Already, the uh, the local authorities, and I heard this. I, I didn't believe it because it was whispers, but then I heard it from the from the lips of the president of the Union of Municipalities, where basically he's going to ask for a derogation from these two legislations because they haven't had enough time to do it. Now, they have had plenty of time to do it because we've been talking about pay as you throw for the last seven years. The legislation was enforced, was put in motion in two years ago. So they had two years to prepare for this, and they haven't been preparing for this. So the question now is going to be, are we going to insist to keep the legislation there and have a bit of a ruffle because, you know, they're not ready. So for two or three months, it's going to be chaos on how to deal with the garbage situation, but they're going to have to do it, and it'll be only two or three months. Or are we going to give them a derogation of two, three, four years And then again, they're not going to be ready because basically they don't want to get into it. They don't want to enforce the law that basically says that you have to recycle. How long do you need to do something that seems so bleedingly basic? Well, Aglanja managed to do it within three months. 
Okay, and we're talking. And there were first teething of June, problems. First of June is over six, seven, eight months away. Yes, there were teething problems when Aglanja did it. Yeah. Uh, we have municipalities that insist that it was a failed uh, scheme because they insist that people are picking up their garbage and they're taking it to to neighboring municipalities to throw away. I mean, I am not saying that there aren't like a few individuals that are actually doing it, but for God's sake, have you tried putting your toilet waste paper into your car and then trying to travel somewhere to take it? I mean, for God's sake. Look, and you might do it once, you might do it twice, but it's definitely not happening We do have the, the phenomenon in Cyprus of fly tipping, where people are dumping rubbish everywhere. Oh, that's different. Yeah, but, no, 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 yeah. I, I just, I'm just mm-hmm. going to come to that because I have heard people say that, oh, ever since Agulanja started charging for rubbish, fly tipping has gone through the roof. No. And it's, no, it has no. not. No, it, it has was not. Always so like why that. is there fly tipping in Bafos, mm-hmm. which is a, quite some distance away from Agulanja? <laughs> why is there fly tipping in Blatres? Quite some distance from Agalanja. It's got nothing to do with that. And let's say it does. This is where we come back to enforcement. Yes. Where if you are caught fly tipping, it's not a slap on the hand. Mm-hmm. It's a decent financial cost to you. Yes. And also, I'll, I'll ask the other question. We have the green spaces uh, where they're supposed to be picking up all the stuff that you're not supposed to be throwing away with your regular garbage. So... Anything from sofas until like derelict batteries or uh, cooking oil or, um, you, know, you know, bad pharmaceuticals, you know, um, out of date products or whatever. Why is it that we still see a lot of fly tipping when everything can be collected when when it's free? Laziness. And also another reason. It's the fact that um, individuals that are professionals are not considered, these green spaces are not accessible to them. So if you are um, a small time plumber, I mean, you're just a small one, one, two person operation. You're not really like a company or something. You're doing the, you're fixing somebody's bathroom. It's a broken toilet or it's a broken, you know, like sink or whatever. What are you going to do with a broken sink and whatever plaster it is that you're going to be taking out? Because obviously you're changing the bathroom. There's going to be some changes, right? You're talking about a very small amount of things. It's not even worth bringing in, renting the skip because (laughs) I'll talk about the skips in a minute. But anyway, this is a very small quantity. Normally, the green spaces should be ready to receive this. Green spaces are not ready to receive this. They don't actually receive it even from you. Like if you want to change your toilet or your bathroom or whatever, they don't accept it. They tell you, you know, there's no solution. You know, do whatever you want with it. So that's why we end up seeing a lot of fly tipping that has to do with construction. Uh, you have somebody that is going to be emptying out um, an apartment. You know, they're, they're moving in, previous owner um, left stuff behind, they don't want it, they don't want to throw them away. You go to the green space and, you know, obviously you rented a car to be able to do this because nobody really has trucks that are going to be able to haul like big yeah. furniture, right? You go to the green space and the green space says, no, you're a professional and I don't want to, re- I, I'm, I'm not accepting things from professionals. And we're like, no, these are our stuff. We just rented the car because we needed to actually transport it in some way. No, we don't accept this. And what are you going to do with it? They end up fly tipping it. So these are objective problems that exist because people that are responsible to making problems go away don't give a rat's ass. They do the minimum and they don't care about whether it actually works or not. How can we challenge this behavior when we live on a small island? We don't live in Australia or you know the US or a massive country. We're living in a small, small and I repeat, small mm-hmm. space. We apply the pressure. Koski, there's no other way. In the, I mean, this pressure needs to be solidified. And this was where I think, now if I'm going to talk about the Greens again, mm-hmm. where I think that I've seen over the years a movement towards 
smaller parties. I mean, if I'm to use, okay, let, let's use the example of Australia. It's called the teal movement, where people move to the, the teal, T E A L, it's a color. Okay. The teal oh, movement. Teal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and basically, what happened is people were getting a bit fed up with the two major parties. They weren't getting things through. So they kind of went, you know what? Let's start voting for independents and micro parties, smaller parties, medium parties, whatever. And I think I'm seeing this in Cyprus. We have a plethora of parties available at the moment. Um, people have tried and tested a few of the classic middle ground parties. But I think a lot of people in your last elections, you did quite well. Mm -hmm. And I think that was because a lot of the younger people went, you know what, here's a serious party. Here's a party that says, okay, I'm going to do something. And has fought for it consistently, transparently, and it's been visible and mm -hmm. has been accessible to the voters and non-voters alike to come and talk to the party. And you can see that there is being pressure to alleviate these problems that you've just described. I um, think that it's very fair what you're saying. But also, um, I think that at the, at the end of the day, having this access to social media, although mm -hmm. it has also polarized society sure. very much, you've got very vocal people that are a very clear minority, but, you know, I don't know, they're they're obsessed or they're they've got a lot of time on their hand or whatever. I mean... You've got a lot of bullying and stuff happening, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you have access to information. And I think that it also changes because, I mean, changes people in the way that they see and view politics. Um, so yes, th there is a change in the landscape. I think that people are looking for something different. And um, I will save you from having to ask the question, but I have to say that right now, the Green Party is in a crisis that we need to deal with as soon as possible to be able to correspond to this need. Because people were very prepared to support us through the years mm -hmm. because they saw that we were fighters. They saw that, you know, we might not, you know, be the best party or have the best policies or policies that they agree with, but at least we were fair and at least we were on the right side. Mm -hmm. This bickering that seems to be happening internally and also this, um, th th these kind of conservative ideas that seem to be seeping through from particular, you know, party members and uh, people that are linchpins within the party, is something that is making them think twice about whether they should support us or not. Look, we have seen across Europe a change in direction in human rights, in gender equality, in the um, education, children's rights, the LGBT community. I mean, I can just keep going on and on mm -hmm. and on. Where for Cyprus, as always, we come a little bit later to the fold. In Cyprus, we saw from 12, uh, sorry, from 2014, we saw our first Pride rally. We saw the LGBT community fighting for their rights and attaining them. Um, we've seen uh, other matters other than the Cyprus problem coming to the fore, which the Greens Party has been quite vocal for. Maybe not so much as a party itself, but certain quite visible party members. Now, and I think that this is what the voter base seems to be feeding from yes because as we said earlier right at the beginning of this chat the older generation they're there and they're going i mean there's what 10 20 30 years left in some of them but the younger generation we're talking about 50 60 70 years ahead of them these are the ones coming through going the world has changed mm -hmm. there's no longer mum at home cooking and cleaning when my dad goes to work and i go to school and um, i go to church every sunday and this is my life now no we're talking about a very a multicultural, multifaceted, multi-identity society that's changing rapidly. And um, it scares I, people. And I think that people also feel like they need to be inspired. They need to be inspired, but they also need to feel included. Yeah. 
They yeah. need to feel that, you know, oh, these people represent me. I mean, like like we said earlier about the dinosaurs. Now, I don't want to pick on the Greens or any party in particular, but when a voter, a young voter, anyone under 50 looks at these parties and goes, ah, oh, that's the same people. So in other words, we're going to get the same results. Yeah, but allow me to say mm. that when we're talking about political dinosaurs, doesn't necessarily mean that it's only an age thing. No, no, no. Because it's also about the mentality. No, I have correct, met young correct. people that seem to be just, you know, reproducing. It's like they've been cloned from politicians from 30, 40 years ago. Even the way they walk, they talk, the way that they're, the mannerisms of their hands. And we're mm -hmm. talking about young people, I mean, in yeah. age, but they are political dinosaurs because the policies that they want to push through seem to be really old and outdated. But what do you see when there is, and, and, I'll, mm -hmm. and I'll counter mm -hmm. that because I've seen what you say, but I've also seen young politicians, those in, actually elected as well, mm -hmm. not, just in the, not just in the MPs in parliament, but even at municipal councils and whatnot. There's a lot of them that are speaking up, they are trying, but they are getting shot down. And I don't see this shoot down culture happening in many other modern places like Cyprus. Um, across the European Union, for example. No, it is. It I is mean, happening. it's happening, but not to the extent we're seeing here. It's like if you go against the party in any way or you come up with a suggestion, it gets shot down. Look, to be honest, I, I think that it's very simple human nature. Mm. When I was doing my MBA, they kept telling us about resistance to change. And it really sunk in when I started seeing it in various aspects. Resistance to change is an innate situation that is a survival trait mm -hmm. and it's been passed down genetically to us. So we need to we need to know about it. We need to um, prepare for it. it in any kind of strategy that you're doing. So the problem that you have with much younger people is the fact that they want change immediately and they don't realize that you actually need to prepare the ground before you actually do things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want to plant something, you have to prepare the ground to be able to plant it. And this, um, I mean, this actually, it's not only young people now that I think of it. I mean, there's a lot of people out there. And um, um, there's another group of people that is very interesting for Cyprus, and I'm not sure if it happens in other countries as well. But because we are actually a small country, we have um, quite significant percentage of our population that is in one way or another dependent on the public sector. Like they're either directly employed by it or they're, you know, working with tenders or whatever. So you have a group of people, a significant group of people that actually have good insight on how things could be better. Um, that, you know, really can't do anything about it publicly until they're retired. So you're talking about 63, 63 to 65 years old. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about the army or the police force, you're talking about 55 to 57 years old. So they're already, you know, like for, for other people, they're considered like, okay, yeah, you're putting, you're being putting out to grace. But these people are really, you know, they're ready to fight and they're ready to try and change things because they have been um, the submitting inside. themselves. Yes. And they've, they've been harassed and being stomped upon for so many years leading up to their retirement. So they break out into politics. They break out into public, uh, um, um, trying to get into public office, trying to change things. So you need to respect that. You need to find a way where you're helping these people use the modern tools to be able to do this. Some are successful. You'll see them on social media. And yeah. it's very surprising for me. I mean, when you see people that were ex-director um, generals of ministries, when you see people that used to be judges, that used to be attorney generals, and they are actually intervening in the public sphere in a way that they couldn't before because they were basically tied up, mm -hmm. right? 
I think that there are very good insights there that we need. So this is not only about young people taking over and let's kick the old people out. So no. instead of using the word young and old, let's just say the experience and the inexperience yes. are able to bridge and learn from each other. We need to have across the board from mm-hmm. all the from all ages, we need to have people that are actually working together towards specific goals. Now, mm-hmm. where do you have the problems? When you were talking about the LGBTQI community like 20, 40 years ago, it was supposed to be a hush-hush thing. I mean, when when we actually had, um, um, oh my God, Alec Cosmodinos coming out in the 1990s and trying to you know gain the basic human rights that other countries had already been allocated towards the gay community, he was uh, he, he was um, um, abused. He had to go to the European Court of Human Rights to actually get his rights back. The Church was actually after him. I mean, it was it was a very, very big thing that happened in the nineties that we didn't start to appreciate until the two thousand and tens. It took like ten years to to the whole for the whole thing to sink in. Plus years. We didn't get the, the 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 political union legislation until 2017. We didn't get the banning of abortions until 2018. These are the kind of things that other countries have already dealt with. I mean, I remember when I was reading about how Malta was being like really beat upon because they didn't allow divorces because they were such a Catholic country mm. um, until I, I'm actually not sure if they've done it yet because there was a there was a referendum in the 1921 in 2021, but I'm not sure if it actually passed or not. I'm not sure, but I think Ireland did recently. Yeah, I, Ireland yeah. uh, did uh, the abortion. And the abortion thing as well. The thing is that we're not alone in having these big cultural clashes and having resistance towards change. It just seems that for such a small island, we could have been much more efficient in dealing with it. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by what I'm hearing you say because you're saying basically that we're no different to any other country. We have the same problems as other places. But, mm-hmm. and this is something that I've been saying for years, we have a potential that other countries don't have. We have a potential because we're so small, but we're a highly educated population. Yes. We're also quite a multicultural population, which few mm. understand the value of. Yes. Which, but we are. But, but we are. Mm. Um, but other countries like Sweden have understood, Germany have understood the value of multiculturalism. And look where they are today. Look at them economically. Look at them socially. Okay. We have the same problems as others, but we have the potential to solve them much easier and much better. And we could even lead by example. We could be such an efficient country. It, we could be Singapore. Yes. We could well, very. No. Singapore is a dictatorship, and, I'm, and that is not what I'm aspiring to. Okay. But we could be Estonia. <laughs> Okay. I mean, Estonia is one of the. It's a it's a small um, country, you know, population wise, but it's actually done miracles in digitalizing the whole executive mm. and legislative branch, and it's managed to um, to be like a real beacon towards other countries, not only surrounding it, but also for the rest of the European it's Union. It's funny you mentioned Estonia because just on a side note, now to to come casual the conversation a little bit, mm-hmm. but I went to Estonia in two thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget getting on a public bus in a country town to head to the city. Mm-hmm. And the bus had Wi-Fi for free, for yes. people on the bus. And I was blown away by it. Because back then, you were lucky if a cafe had Wi-Fi. 
Well, you know. <laughs> Brussels in 2001, when I went for my Erasmus, I could go online and check the application to see exactly what time the bus is going to be there. Mm-hmm. And when I reached the bus stop, there was actually a countdown. Mm-hmm. And it also had a countdown for the four buses that would that would come and cater to that bus station. Yeah. And it actually showed you what the next bus stop was going to be. And the line, the whole line was available for you. And we didn't have apps at the time, but we could use our mobiles to access the internet. Yeah. So you had access to that web page. Uh, it, it's mind-boggling that we're in 2023 right now, and most of our bus stops are basically a chair that somebody took there yeah. because they changed it to the pole. Yes. Yeah. And the, the, these are the kind of things that I don't understand why we're so behind. I mean, it, in, in an efficient way, we could have been a much better country. I mean, electricity. Mm-hmm. The fact that we're paying so much money for electricity is eating up on everybody's uh, um, um, income. And it, it's it's across the board. It's everything that we eat. It's the way that we have fun. It's what we decide to buy. It's about having a house over our heads. I mean, how is it possible that we haven't managed to deal with this one thing? I mean, making sure that we have cheaper um, energy for everybody, not only for um, the, the low-income yeah. uh, community. We're talking about every single person. I mean, we were talking about greed before. If you're a greedy and so-and-so, and And, uh, you're trying to have your your company be as efficient as possible so that you actually have more income, right? I mean, for your dividends or whatever. How is it that we still haven't managed to make sure that the the big significant portion of people that are on the the one end of this bill not change, not change the way that we produce energy, not change the way that energy is built? And it's quite comical living on an island that has how many days or something? Oh, God. We have at least 10, 10 and a half months of of solar energy. But, you know, sometimes it's also about not understanding how everything is interconnected. Mm -hmm. So right now, there is, for instance, this huge debate about whether we're going to go through with the interconnector or not, the um, uh, East Asia uh, cable. If we actually manage to bring that project into fruition, it basically means that we have resolved two of the biggest problems that we have in dealing with renewable energy. The one is the fact that you can actually sell that renewable energy off-island. You're, you're, you're serving it to customers that are going to need it in other places. It also means that you can buy energy when we're actually not producing on the island. And the second problem is that, sorry, and the second problem that it resolves is the fact that you don't, you're um, not needing to invest so much money in infrastructure about saving energy batteries, and batteries. Yeah. I've been hearing about the huge problem that we have about storage and energy storage and, you know, how it's going to need like billions and nobody's prepared to put that money as an investor and blah, blah, blah. Whilst a cable, which, you know, to be totally safe, at some point it has to be two or three cables, right? Mm -hmm. But a cable that would actually allow you to be able to sell what you're producing, buy what you need. And also it could mean investments. It could mean investments in other countries that Mm -hmm. also have a lot of solar power. In countries that are, because of the time uh, difference and um, um, how far they are from Cyprus, it means that they're actually maybe also producing from the sun Mm -hmm. a lot later than when you're producing. Or they're they're producing from wind energy when you don't have anything to produce in, in your island. And we have to say, when we're talking about renewable energy, we're not only talking about solar. I mean, just creating uh, biogas to be able to create energy with all the garbage that we're throwing away, that would also be a huge dent in our bills if we actually got our act together. Because we have been supposed to be recycling organic material uh, and organic food waste from 
2017, and we haven't done anything towards that, which is one of the problems with the pay-as-you-throw system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we had done it and we had created like the the bioenergy, the, 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 um, the collection of the biogas in the various municipalities and communities, like at a micro level, it, we, have, we would have resolved two problems with one step. Actually, three problems because our vision towards utilizing the compost that comes out of these biogas um, infrastructure um, uh, areas is that we would be utilizing it towards combating um, desertification. Mm-hmm. Like we would actually be using this fertilizer for people to use in their in their crops and in, the, in their areas, but mainly also using it in the government-owned property, which is a big portion of the land that we have available. So putting it back into your forest, putting it back in even into empty fields mm-hmm. that right now are not being cultivated and are um, in the first stages of, of des- desertification. So everything would have worked towards a system that is going to make this island more livable, make it more attractive, and make it more efficient in how we're dealing with our waste instead of like just throwing it and dumping it and cu- trying to constantly create new pits to dump everything in. Which at the end of the day, for each and every Cypriot and resident on the island, means more money in their pocket. Yes. Which is what, at the end of the day... And most a better lifestyle. That I mean, at the end of the day, everything that the Green Party is talking about is sustainability. Mm-hmm. It's about sacrifices are always needed. You you always need to make some sort of sacrifice. But we're trying to make systems that are going to make it as easy as possible to be able to be a sustainable economy, to be a cyclical economy, a green economy that means that everybody gets a portion of the wealth that is being produced. Now you're you're still going to have people that are going to be richer than others and people that are going to be poorer than others. You're still going to have situations where you've got disease, where you've got mental illness, where you've got stuff that you need to deal with as a country. But if you've dealt with the basics, if you've made sure that, you know, people that are, you know, capable of taking care of themselves can actually live and prosper on this island, it means that you can focus your welfare state towards those that objectively cannot for whatever you reason. You can't build a building without a good foundation. Yes. So that, that's why I'm, I'm looking at this holistically. So I'm looking at housing first, because whatever I'm trying to convince to people, like you're telling them that, you know, it's very important that you don't throw your garbage away. If this person doesn't have a house over their head, they don't care about yeah. what's going on with the garbage. They're actually probably throwing garbage just to show that, you know, I, I still have some sort of control over my life and I'm going to make your life a hell. Because, you know, you have a house, you have a beautiful garden, you have like a family or whatever, and I don't have anything. So I'm going to make it as shitty as possible for you. These are the kind of things that we need to be dealing with. So the basic. Basic is food and shelter and then everything else. I think that's a good um, good point to end that discussion. I think um, you've got some important weeks ahead of you. Oh, yes. It's going to be fun. <laughs> One way or another, uh, I, I think that the, the Green Party has to show its true colors. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that the members will understand that this is actually a very critical position that we are right now. And the choices that are going to be made are going to be um, are going to have repercussions in the future. So mm-hmm. whatever choice is being made, they should know that. And that's what I'm I hope that my candidacy will appeal to most of the members. Well, I wish you the very best of luck. I look forward to inviting you back to the podcast as president of the Greens in the future. 
Um, it's been great to talk with you. I'm, I've it's always a lot great you. to talk with I've you. I've learned a lot from you today. I mean, you always surprise me, Effie, so I really appreciate that. No, and I have to say that your podcast was very, it was a nice breath of fresh air. And there's there's um, few things that are coming out in English that have to do with our part of the island. So I was very happy to hear about it, and I wish you all the best. Well, look, just, just, just before we end that, yes. I do want to mention the reason why I've chosen to do this in English is because we have at least a quarter of our population yes. that is not Greek-speaking. Yes. And the majority of Greek speakers understand English. So as the lingua franca of the island, unofficially, it helps reach out to a lot of people. Yeah, but let me say yeah. that you are you are still talking about the portion of people that are living in the Republic of Cyprus. Correct. When you bring into account the Turkish Cypriots as well, and mm-hmm. you know, and, and it that, that percentage is, is even higher. So yeah. it is important that we find a way to be able to communicate. And I think that what you're doing is very important towards this. I thank you very much and I look forward to speaking to you again soon, Effie. Cheers. The first trilingual podcast station of Cyprus, Island Talks, open, diverse, free.